Okay, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and get started here. And I want to start with a, with a thought experiment with you guys. So just imagine with me, uh, okay, that was faster that time. I just got it started, right? We're working on it. Uh, okay, so I want you to do this thought, exper thought experiment with me. Imagine that you are, uh, that you're meeting a stranger, maybe at work, at the gym, at the Y pool, back when that was a thing that we got to do just a few months ago, right? And imagine you're having an interaction with someone and you walk away and you think to yourself, have you ever wondered this? I wonder if that person is a Christian. Have you ever wondered that? Okay, what is it in the interaction with that stranger that makes you wonder that? This is participatory, so you can share your thoughts. Kindness. Their kindness. Joy. Love. They listen. They're caring. Peaceable. Yeah, so we're going to talk this morning about joy as one of the marks of us as people uh, who trust in Jesus. And I, I have this quote for us I, I want to read to start. It's by a woman, Phyllis McGinley. It says, I've read that during the process of canonization, the Catholic Church demands proof of joy in the candidate. And although I've not been able to track down chapter and verse, I like the suggestion that dourness is not a sacred attribute. I'm gonna read that one more time. I've read that during the process of canonization, the Catholic Church demands proof of joy in the candidate. And although I have not been able to track down chapter and verse, I like the suggestion that dourness is not a sacred attribute. That what Phyllis is talking about here is that, that when you meet someone who is a seasoned Christ follower, someone who is mature in their relationship with Jesus, that one of the traits that's going to characterize that kind of person is joy. That, uh, that if, we get to, if we get to live to be... Uh, people who have been following Christ for decades, that, that, what we would, that what people would see in us would be those, the kind of the wrinkles that come from smiling so much, you know? That we would have a joy that comes from the inside to the outside effortlessly. And that it would be refreshing to us and to other people. Right? Not the kind of laughing that comes from sarcasm, from cutting other people down or not the irony that delights in robbing the wonder from the world, but that we would be a people who experience real joy. Eugene Peterson, who's one of my favorite pastors, he, he talks about how joy is not a requirement of the Christian life, but it's a consequence. And what that reminds us is that joy is not something that we manufacture. And I want to say that up front, that that is not the point of this morning. It's not to say to you, hey, listen up. Christians are joyful people, so put on a smile and get it together when you go out there, okay? That is not the point of what we're saying. That joy is something that we, that we grow in, that we mature in as believers. That we don't outgrow our joy. that we come, we come to understand more and more deeply over our, the time of our walk with Christ the joy that, that is ours, that belongs to us. And so the passage that we're going to be in this morning in Nehemiah is, is a passage that's tutoring us in what it means to be a people of joy. 
it shows us why God's people rejoice, the source of our joy, and then it shows us how they rejoice or how we express our joy. So why people rejoice, why God's people rejoice, and how God's people rejoice. So I'm gonna invite Ellie Turner. Ellie's gonna come up here and read our passage for us this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can flip to Nehemiah 12 is where we're gonna be this morning. Nehemiah 12, starting in verse 27 and going to verse 43. Okay, Nehemiah 12, 27 through 43. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netaphathites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Merkiah, the son of Zachor, the son of Asaph, and his associates, Shemaiah, Azarel, Noali, Gilali, Mai, Methanel, Judah, and Hanani, with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, the scribe, led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall, together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim, the Jeshina gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the shoot gate. At the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs gave, that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests, Elohim, Messiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elonai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with their trumpets, and also Messiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Jehoanan, Malkajah, Elam, and Ezer. The choir sang under the direction of Jezariah. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Thanks, Ellie. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, and we trust that you want to speak to us this morning. Uh, we ask that you would do that, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts um, through the work of your Holy Spirit, Lord, and that you would be maturing us this morning and growing us into the joyful people that you created us to be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, man, I've just got to, can we just, can we clap for Ellie, huh? 
Nice. That was a lot of names, okay? She killed it. Uh, and you may wonder, why do we read the passages with all the names? I think, just, I think it's important for us, just as kind of a, this is not part of the sermon, this is just a side note, okay? That part of the reason that we preach through all of those verses is because what, what, we're, what I want you to see is that all of the Bible matters. And so we're not skipping the verses that are awkward or like hard uh, to pronounce, that we want you to see that we're reading all of it because we believe all of it matters, because we believe God speaks to us through all of it. God chose to give us the lists of these people's names. Uh, and what we see here, okay, so that's just a side note. Now back to what we're actually talking about. So what we see in our passage this morning, this is, this is the high point of the entire book of Nehemiah. And really, we kind of talked about at the beginning of this series how Ezra and Nehemiah were probably originally one book. So this is the high point of all of Ezra and Nehemiah, this chapter right here, because this is the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. All of the work the people have been doing is finally realized here in this chapter. The wall has been completed, and not only has the wall been completed, but the people have rededicated themselves to God. Worship in the temple has been restarted. The people have come back into this covenant with God. They've dedicated themselves to serving him. And so here we have this massive celebration put on by the people of God. We see that in verse 27. A dedication of the wall of Jerusalem is what it says. They sought all of the Levites and other places to bring them to celebrate, to celebrate with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And to celebrate, they have a massive parade. So verse 31 says, I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall, and then we jump down to verse 38, and it says the other went to the north on the wall. So can I get my slide up here? So this is a picture of the city of Jerusalem as it was, uh, as people think it was kind of reconstituted under Nehemiah. And you see the walls that go around the city. Okay, can we go to the next slide? And these are kind of, this is the parade route for each of the groups. So the first choir goes around this way, okay? The second choir goes up this way. And they meet here in the middle at the temple. And they come together, these two great choirs, and they sing, they praise, they offer sacrifices of thanksgiving to God together. Think about it like when, um, when someone wins the NBA Finals, you know? Like the Lakers, and all of LA turns out to celebrate the Lakers. Or a few years ago when the Cubs won the World Series, and all of Chicago poured out, yes, all of Chicago poured out to celebrate the Cubs winning. There's this massive ticker tape parade, right? There's this public outpouring of joy. That is what is happening in this passage. There's this massive public outpouring of joy. I love it says at the end that the sound of the joy in Jerusalem could be heard far away. This is a time when there was no noise pollution, right? There was like no interstate ringing Jerusalem that made it hard to hear things, no airplanes flying over. The sound of the people worshiping God, blowing their trumpets, singing, echoed for miles around the city. You can take the maps down. Why? Why were the people celebrating is what we have to ask. It'd be easy to think, well, just look at their accomplishments. Look at what they've done. They rebuilt the wall of their city in something like 52 days. That's amazing. It's kind of their opportunity to give themselves a big pat on the back. Right? It's like when you go to dinner and they ask, oh, are you celebrating anything? And 
often we're celebrating things like promotions, right? Or graduations, things that we've done. But that's, that's not what's happening here, actually. This is not the people celebrating their own work. And we know that because of how often this passage uses the term thanksgiving. Nehemiah right? says he appoints two great choirs that give thanks. And they meet up in the temple, what do they do when they get there? They give thanks. Who are they thanking? Who do you think they're thanking? The Lord, the Lord right? They're obviously not thanking themselves. That would be silly. You wouldn't call it thankfulness if that's what was going on. They're thanking God, and they're singing. And they're not singing, great are we, Lord, right? They're singing, great are you, Lord. That this whole celebration is public choreography praising God. A lot of people think that Psalm 147 was written specifically for this event in the life of God's people. That this may have been the psalm that they sang as they had their parade around the city. And this is what it says. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. Isn't that what God did for them? He gathers the outcast of Israel from all of the nations surrounding, right? He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And then it, it kind of zooms out. It says he determines the numbers of the stars. He gives them all their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble and casts the wicked to the ground. So sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes the grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food, to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor pleasure in the legs of man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. The people are rejoicing in what God has done for them. And if you're, if you're a practical person, you're thinking, well, but I thought they did it, right? Isn't that what we just spent the last several weeks talking about? All of the ways that the people were working together to build the wall, to rededicate Jerusalem, to restart temple worship? Yeah, that's true. And what we see in this passage is what we see all throughout Scripture, which is this beautiful harmony between, between God's work and our work. Psalm 127 says it like this. It says, uh, if the Lord does not build the house, the laborers labor in vain. But if the Lord doesn't keep watch over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. But it's in vain that you go to bed early and work Go to bed late and rise up early, eating the bread of anxious toil, for the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. That even in all of our working, we have a God who is giving to us. As we think back to the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, right? When Nehemiah, the leader who we've been talking about for all of these chapters, was back in the capital of the city or the nation of Persia, who was it that put a dream for, Jer for Jerusalem in Nehemiah's heart? Who was it? It was God, right? That's what the text says. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem and he says, I hadn't told anybody what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. That it was God who stirred him up with care for this city. Right? Who was it who moved King Artaxerxes, 
this king who we know is a historical king in the history of the Persian Empire, right? One of the most powerful kings who ever lived. Who was it who put it into Artaxerxes' heart to support the rebuilding of the temple and the wall in Jerusalem? Okay, we, we can try that again, okay? Who was it who put that into Artaxerxes' heart? God, right? Remember there were enemies who were coming against Jerusalem when the walls had not been completed yet? Who, who was it who, who looked over the people who warned them of the enemies that were coming against them? Okay, guys, you should be getting the hang of this by now. Okay, I'm gonna try it again. Who was it? God, right? That all throughout this story that's been unfolding, what we've been talking about is that it is God who's been at work through his people. That the people aren't giving honor to themselves, they're giving honor and glory to God for what he has done for them. And we talked about how God rebuilding his, that God is, that God in this book and over the course of scripture, what we see is that God is engaged in this project of building, of building uh, a holy city where a holy people are gonna worship him as a holy God. What the people are doing here in worshiping God is they're, they're celebrating the fact that they were able to participate with God in what he was doing. But this whole celebration is them participating, or is, is them celebrating that they have been able to participate with God in what he has been doing in the world. And here's, here's the bad news, though, is that after this celebration, the high point of the book, everything falls apart. The wheels come off. And the low point of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is the end of Nehemiah. Because if you remember, last week we talked about all the commitments that people made to walk in the law of God. What happens in chapter 13 is that uh, point by point, we see all of the ways that people have failed to keep up their end of the bargain. Nehemiah, like he gets recalled from Jerusalem and he goes back to Persia for a little while. And he comes back, and when he comes back, he starts pulling out people's beards and beating them with sticks because he's so upset because of all of the ways they have failed to keep the law of God, which is not necessarily an endorsement of pulling out people's hair and beating them with sticks, okay, for the record. Scripture often uh, descriptive, not prescriptive, right? But what it's showing is that the people themselves were unable to keep the law of God like they had promised. But here's here's what continues to be true. is that the same God who was at work through them as they were participating with him continued to be at work even when they were not participating. That even though the walls were finished, God was not finished. Because he he knew and he knows what his people truly need. God knew that his people needed new hearts. He knew that they needed atonement for their sin. They needed freedom from the law. They needed death and darkness and evil to be defeated. And even though his people had lost the plot, right? Even though they had given up, God had not given up and God was still at work. Because Nehemiah is ultimately not about uh, how you can be a good leader. If you were walking out of the sermon series with that, then I don't know, we've really missed the boat on this one, okay? (laughs) That's what we've been trying to not preach because that's not the point of this book. Right, Nehemiah, as great of a leader as he was, was not able to give God's people a new heart. That the people needed God to do that for them. 
and, and this next chapter that is kind of the lone no- note of the book is the final piece of Israel's history that we have recorded in the Old Testament. The people not keeping their commitments is where the history of Israel ends in the Bible. You know where it picks up? With John the Baptist. With the genealogy of our Lord. And what that reminds us is that in that gap, God, people call it the 400 years of silence. I don't know what a better term for that is, but I don't think that's true. Because even though new scripture was not being pinned, God's word was still speaking and God was still at work preparing the way for his son. That's what makes this passage such a great lead-in for us into Advent. That we see this high point of celebration, this low point of the people deserting God, and this waiting for God to show up. Excuse me. The people waiting for one who would finish the work. That's what Jesus says, right, when when he's on the cross. It is finished. That our sins uh, have been atoned for. That death has been defeated. That we're no longer slaves to the law, to sin, to the flesh. That we've been set free as the children of God. That that's true about us. So while the Jews in this passage are, are celebrating the completion of the wall of Jerusalem, right, where they're dedicating the wall, what's true about us and our joy that's different from the joy that they were, celeb- the joy that they were stepping into is that we know that it's been finished. Not just the walls around Jerusalem, but that the work of God on our behalf has been completed, that we are a people who have now been given new hearts, that we're a people who have been set free. And yet, at the same time, we're a people who are waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to come again, that we can see these things that he's already accomplished for us brought to their fullness. And our joy comes right, in this period of waiting that we're in. That our joy comes from part- our participation with God. That that's the source of our joy. That because of what Christ has done, we talked about this when we were preaching through Philippians, that we have been united to Christ. Right? That's true about us. That if you that if you are if that you're a Christian, if if you're Uh, if you've confessed your faith in Jesus, that what is true about you is that you are in Christ. You are inseparably united to him is what Paul would teach us in the New Testament. And that your participation in that union with Christ is the source now of your joy. Which means you don't have to go somewhere else or go and get something else to fill you up to get joy. You don't have to consume to get joy. That joy is already yours because you, by your very nature, are in union with Christ and you're participating with Christ. Psalm 43 talks about God, my, the psalmist cries out, God, my exceeding joy. That's, that's true about us. That our joy is found in God and the fact that we've been inseparably united to him through Christ. The 
the joy that we get to experience is the joy that we find in participating with his work out in the world and his work in us. And that is so different from the way that our world coaches us to find joy, isn't it? That rather than seeking joy in participation, what we often do is try to find joy in consuming. So I've got this, this, and then in trying to get joy for myself, what I'm always doing is, is I'm, I'm consuming, that we're consuming. Like it's true when you think about the way that we consume entertainment, right? If we just imagine watching uh, Netflix, for example, right? There's an endless stream of content. There's always more that we could be taking in, taking in, taking in, taking in, that if I can take in a little bit more, maybe I'll be able to find some, some happiness, some joy, some peace for myself. But all of that that we're consuming, that we're constantly taking in, what it creates is, is actually distance because when we're taking in entertainment, what we're doing is we're watching this thing that's taking place outside of us, right? And that's so different from the joy that we're called to in Christ, which is a joy of relationship and participation. It's true in relationship, it's true with people. That so often the way that we can approach the people around us is with a consumer mentality, right? How do I, in my relationship with you, get what I need to fill myself up? If that's the way that I'm trying to connect with you, uh, that's not a relationship at all. That's me consuming you like a product. That what we, what we find here, right, in, in what the scripture would teach us about joy is that the joy doesn't come from consuming relationship from each other, it comes from participating in loving relationship with each other when rather than taking, what we're, what we're doing is trying to figure out how do I give? That joy allows us to become less, to escape from the prison of ourselves. I love that in this parade, uh, you know, Nehemiah does not lead one of the choirs. That one of them is led by Ezra, who's kind of the priest or the scribe at this time. And then the other one is led by another priest. And Nehemiah is just back in the parade. But this man who has been driving forward the work of God in this city is able to say, as we're praising and thanking and celebrating God, I don't have to be the one who, who's honored. I don't have to get something from all these people who are worshiping God. I am free to just participate and to find and experience the joy that comes in that. And friends, that is a kind of joy that is available for us in everyday life. The joy now is not this thing we have to escape to find somewhere else, but the joy is, is possible for us in our everyday lives because we are with Christ in our everyday lives, because he's working in and through us and for us in our everyday lives. realize that, to participate with that requires us to slow down. That in the frantic busyness of, of the way that I, the way that we typically live, that it's so hard to remember that God is at work. And so as has been the case for these last several weeks, that this passage is also a call for us into the rhythm of, of slowing down 
of creating space in our day-to-day lives where we would where we would be quiet before God and would have the space to think about, God, where are you at work? Where am I participating with you? And that's shaping the way that we're approaching Advent or planning to approach Advent as a community. That we're going to be opening up this space at lunch one day, probably Wednesdays from like 12 to 1, and then on at least one evening from kind of 4 to 6 to create a space where you can come in here and we're not going to, there's going to be n- nothing happening. There will be no sound. Not even light instrumental Christmas music. <laughs> to create a space for you to come and, and be quiet. Because this next uh, eight-week stretch, right, is, is typically one of the loudest and busiest seasons any of us will ever engage in, isn't it? Have, what we're believing is that there's joy for us in this season if we can, part- if there's joy for us in this season and the call is that we would slow down enough to, to realize what it means to participate with God in it. And that when we're going to all of our things that we will go to, right, our Thanksgivings and our Friendsgivings and our Christmas parties and our other Christmas parties and our other Christmas parties, but as we, as we, as we go to those events that we'll be able to participate as participants, not as consumers, that we'd be able to ask the Lord, Lord, what do you have for me here? What gifts do you have for me here with the people around me? What do, you, what do you have for me to give here to the people around me? Maybe creating space for us to have that quiet so we can engage in that way uh, over the next few weeks. That's also kind of the heart of our uh, making these Advent wreaths. Uh, it's not something I did until we had kids, but you can do it without kids, okay, I promise. And the idea is that you would sit this thing on your table where you eat your meals and spend a significant amount of your time and that once a week you would light one of the candles and read a verse with it kind of meditate on the truth of it and it's another way of creating a rhythm in your life that slows you down during this time of waiting for Jesus and this passage actually gives us a few kind of handholds as we think about, man, how do I engage, how do I participate with God in what he's already doing in my life and in my world? I love verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. That's five uh, joys in this verse. Three of them are, uh, are rejoicing, are the verb form of joy. Right? I often think about joy as like I'm going to be still and silent and quiet, right? which we've been talking about, finding the space for that, and then I'm going to like have this feeling, which is true sometimes. But that's not the picture that we have here, right? It's that the joy that God has put in our hearts also comes out of us in thanksgiving, in singing, and in worship. The Thanksgiving is actually a practice. It's not a, oh, okay, I was gonna say, it's not, it's not just a day, right? But Thanksgiving is a practice that we're called to engage in in our lives. Of giving thanks to God, because what Thanksgiving requires us to do is it requires us to stop and to think about our lives and to look for the ways that God has been at work. And then to speak those and thank him out loud for those things. Thanksgiving is this, is this channel that flows and, and waters. Uh, uh, it's like a channel that flows 
and waters a dry field. That it brings, Thanksgiving is the channel that brings joy into the parched places of our lives. That those parched places may actually be the places that we need to stop and ask God, God, what do I have to be thankful for here? What have you been doing here? What that thankfulness does is it makes us aware of and draws us deeper into the relationship that we have with God because of what God has done for us through Christ. Right? It's not, it's not gratitude as a practice that lightens our hearts. It's thanksgiving as a reminder of our relationship with the creator of the universe who's come for us and loves us that acts as a channel bringing joy into our lives. What we also see in this passage is that the people sing, right? They sing and they worship, they use instruments. That the joy of the people finds expression in song. And song, isn't it one of the most nostalgic things in our lives? That when you hear a song that you listen to in high school, it just takes us right back. Nothing does that like music because music engages us mind, body, and heart that our, our, literally, our personhood is resonating with what we're singing. That the whole of who we are as people are engaged as we sing. That's why, that's why we sing here, like in church. Because what we believe is that singing engages the whole, that God created singing. He created it to do that, to engage the whole person. That our singing, it forms us and prepares us for joy. And singing, like we've been talking about, is participatory, right? It's, it's giving and it's, it's relational which is why being here and being a part of a body that sings is so important. Do you ever think about how silly it is that we sing together? Like if you didn't have any context for church, and maybe this is you this morning, and you walk in, what, what are, these people are singing together. It's so weird. The only other place that we do that is at concerts, right? And usually we have had something to drink that helps us to do that. <laughs> I don't know where you're coming from this morning. I would imagine that most of you have not had that experience before getting here. Right, that we're like as fully as, as adults who have full use of our faculties are choosing to sing together? What a weird thing. What an important thing to hear other people uh, who you know and see out in the wild, right? Uh, proclaiming what you know to be true about God with their whole selves. And one of the reasons we need what happens here on a Sunday morning is because we need to hear other people singing what's true. And what's also true for you is that you need to sing what's true. So if you're here and you're uh, too cool for school and you never get to singing, I would invite you to actually sing. Because you need to have yourself resonating with the truth of the God who has come for you. And you know, we actually have the freedom uh, to be expressive in our worship. I think about when I was growing up, my grandma loved to sit on the front row of church, which means I sat on the front row of church. Uh, 
And I have this such a clear picture of watching her clap along to the music when no one else was clapping. I'm like, what are you doing? This is so uncomfortable, right? <laughs> sometimes on beat, sometimes off. Um, it's okay. I have that same problem myself, right? Um, yeah. And as I stand up here, kind of in the front of our congregation, I, I can't help but remember that each Sunday. That um, that was a woman who was so filled with joy that it was coming out in the way that she clapped her hands on or off the beat. And in that kind of expression, whether it's the, the loudness with which we sing or the clapping or the hands raised, whatever it is, you know, the point of that is not to prove to other people somehow how holy you are by what you're doing with your body in worship. That is not the point, okay? But that worship as a full body experience is something that you are, you, you're invited to use your body in as, as we worship and, and sing here and praise and worship. One of the instruments that gets called out specifically in this passage are trumpets, these like ram's horns that they would blow on all around the city, right? That's what people were hearing far away was the shouting and the ram's horns, the trumpets. And trumpets were used for two things uh, in ancient Israel. They were used to summon the people to war and they were used for worship. And that actually those two things are not that far apart, are they? That what we're doing here as we sing together is we are worshiping the Lord and we are also fighting a war together for our own hearts and for the hearts of the people around us. That we're fighting to push back the darkness in our lives to remind ourselves that we have a God who is here, who has come for us and who we are participating with whether we open our eyes to it or not because of what Christ has done for us. These practices of of silence and stillness, of thankfulness, of worship. They're a response to what God does in our hearts, but they are also often a way that we call our hearts to respond. That engaging in thankfulness, engaging in worship are not just things that we do when we feel joyful. That, that thanking God and worshiping God are sometimes things that we do to help our hearts remember what our joy is. So I'm going to invite the people who are leading us in worship this morning to come back up, and they're going to do that. I just want to and want to encourage you that, uh, regardless of whether you're singing because of the joy that God has put in your heart and that you feel this morning, or whether you are singing to remind yourself of the joy that God tells you is true uh, of you in Christ, uh, that singing this morning and worshiping God is something uh, that is worth it for us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we're thankful that joy is not a thing that we have to go out and get for ourselves. Lord, that it's not something that we have to consume enough, uh, enough other things to fill ourselves up with joy, but that we have because of what you have done for us. And Father, as we, as we sing and worship this morning, would you engage our hearts? Lord, would you uh, warm us up and remind us of the joy that we have because of your work in us? And in